Alright, I feel really tall. Hopefully you guys got some good rest. Uh, I guess our staff has like a Trinitarian vibe because I'm going to deflect and say it's all Shiv. <laughs> so, Shiv, you guys have seen, he has been everywhere. I kind of feel like uh, I was more the Holy Spirit in the background. The Shiv was like the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, you know, nail the prawn, doing all that, walking talkie. So, but yeah, it's, it's a good thing. We want to uplift each other. And so I also want to deflect that my wife, Angela, has been just a gangster. She has been not even being able to participate a lot, but very nice to speak, so kudos to her. Uh, but obviously very humbled by that intro. If you don't know me, I am part of the pastoral staff. And uh, yeah, I hope, hope you got some rest, because I did not. <laughs> I am the total of 12 times during worship, which is a record. Uh, but all that is to say, just a couple of uh, um, warm-up notes before we get into the Word. I remember when we first visited this retreat site. By the way, I hope it was a nice retreat site. That was one of our goals to find one that was a nice one. Uh, and when we saw the bonfire in the area in particular, uh, Tom and I, we have sensey moments, like sensitive moments, where we're like, how beautiful would it be? <laughs> you know, if the churches gather around the fire and there's like kids and adults alike. Um, my small group, one of the guys said like, um, you know, we have all ages, young to old, and the, 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 the example he gave, we have toddlers to Tom. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Well, I'm not even the oldest person here. <laughs> toddlers to Tom, <laughs> gathered around the fire. And it pretty much happened last night, so it's just cool to see the whole church. I think it makes all the work worth it. Um, there's something very limiting when the church is fragmented. I think the body of Christ is full. I, I'd love to carry that on through the ethos and the DNA of our church. And hopefully, as we head home today, too, I do hope there's at least one or two things that you take away from the retreat that you can apply. I mean, I think the good thing about Jason Park is he is clear. <laughs> if you don't know what this retreat was about, Psalm 23. Uh, you were not paying attention uh, because that's very obvious that this was kind of what we were trying to push throughout the retreat. Only well, we had to connect and fellowship. It was awesome to see people that normally don't have opportunities to connect. Uh, I know our parents are risk takers because last night I saw one parent come out and I'm like, oh, the other spouse must be, you know, watching the kids. Then the other spouse came out and so I was like, oh, all right, cool. We're all just hanging out. That was lovely. And I know for me, like I mentioned, this uh, Psalm 23 has been like really helpful for me because I come from more of a Religious upbringing, God is this mighty deity, servant, and you kind of do stuff for him, and he is just pleased by you, not pleased in you, right? It is your service, it is your hands that he is towards you. And this weekend alone, I'm not going to lie, I mean, it was rough. Uh, Ezra's going through this weird regression where he needs me to fall asleep. So, like, Angela, she can't even do anything. Like, I have to go there, I'll, like, leave my small group in and out. And last night, you know, spit up everywhere, and I'm just thinking, like, huh. How do I process this? And then there was something very comforting, and I hope there is for you guys too. I want to take a little bit of time for this before I go into it. Is um, I've been told that um, there are times when you're supposed to deal with words like fine china, but I've been told I deliver it like like baseballs. <laughs> so I've been told, hey, you deliver china like like baseballs, and so you got to take your time sometimes. So I want to slow down because I think this is a fine china type of encouragement exhortation, but. We're reaching a stage in our church where I think people, if they haven't already, they're going to go through some stuff. Uh, I know some of you guys sitting in here, you can put a face on, but you are going through some stuff. And I think that's just real life. I think that's why, that's the beauty of what God intends the church to be. I mean, it's not a facade, it's not a place to play a game, but like when you go through stuff, uh, I think God wants the church to be the answer for that. And I do think the Lord being your shepherd is more about Him just being present with you. Like, that's a very 
weird concept for a lot of, I think, Asians. Uh, we're very service-oriented. We're very like, God is someone that I follow uh, rather than him being with me. So I hope that is something that you can really take away with you, particularly for those who need it. Um, and so that being said, we are continuing on in our series, Every Member Ministry. And basically, whether you are officially serving or not, uh, I'm going to make the case from our text today that everyone has a ministry and a service to the body of Christ, which we're going to see. So uh, I'm going to project it up there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. Uh, I'm not going to obviously go super deep into the text, but I'm just going to draw a couple main ideas as we close out this week. Hopefully we can apply them to head back home. So Hebrews chapter 3, I'll read it, pray briefly, and then we'll get to the word. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me pray briefly. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this retreat that we can get away, whether we're new, whether we're members, whether we are exploring Christianity, we've been Christian for a long time. We thank you that we've been hearing this weekend that you are a good shepherd who caters your love, your message, and your presence to everyone in the way that we need. So we pray that your word would do that now. And for those of us who need to be challenged, that that's what would happen. For those of us who need to be encouraged, that that's what would happen. But most importantly, corporately as a body of Christ, we will not just consume this weekend. We will not take and not do it to build up your body even more throughout your life. Thank you in Jesus' name. So, I mean, I've, I've, I mention this all the time. Uh, I'm very upfront. I've been immersed in church culture for a very long time. It comes with this pros and cons. I think a lot of you guys have as well. And, and one word and concept that's used very liberally is, is the idea of fellowship, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys know, but we posted on our Instagram fellowship and someone wiping a baby's butt, right? That's fellowship. <laughs> so that's fellowship. Uh, we're around the bonfire, and that's fellowship. Uh, people are playing golf, and that's fellowship. Um, by the way, I'm intentionally putting golf in because I know golf is kind of like creeped into our church, right? So if like, you know, you're one of those guys, I am talking about you guys, right? But fellowship, it just tops the list in the sense that people talk about it all the time, people use the term all the time, but people actually don't really know what they're talking about when they're talking about fellowship. And I think that's a tragedy because it's actually a very precious biblical word and concept, the idea of fellowship. Um, I learned fellowship to be basically equivalent to the idea of hanging out. Right? People always do things under the banner of fellowship, uh, playing sports, eating food, playing video games, watching movies, sometimes even sitting under the banner of fellowship. It's terrible, right? And so it is this very hijacked word that has a long scriptural background and roots. And the problem with all of these things, though, is this, this biblical concept of fellowship has been hijacked to not have anything Christian about it. That's a problem. And that's unfortunate, because if you were to tap into what Christian fellowship really is, I think the church will start to ooze out some of the actual brightness and the salt and the light that makes the church attractive. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with wanting to hang out or wanting to fellowship. In fact, I thought one of the highlights was the activities, and we're going to give over shout outs to everyone who planned that. I thought that was super, super fun. In fact, I think if you're not a Christian here exploring, I think it's hard to argue that one way or another, human design is social. Right? You want to hang out. You want to connect. That's why every newcomer in that part of every church, what are you looking for in the church? Everyone will say, community, connection. It's not a Christian thing. That is a human thing. And that's why you see what? Clicks, communities, forming around shared hobbies, shared interests. And what I want to do is use this text to paint more of a biblical picture. I hope to not go too long because I think it's more just concepts for us to think about but especially as a church for us to take back. 
And so the three things simply is, okay, how do we define it? Christian fellowship. Why is it needed? Why is it important? And then thirdly, how do we kind of practice this? And then we'll be done. So the definition again. A fellowship, biblically speaking, it's this Greek neutral word that basically carries the idea of you have an association around an interest or a mutual participation in something. Right? It's this word you might have heard it before, koinonia. So in the Greek context, some people use koinonia in the context of like business partnerships. So you and I, we're going to partner together and we have now a koinonia in business. Other people will talk about it in the context of marriage. Husband, wife, we are now fellowshipped and united in our mutual participation in our marriage. A more contemporary example that I really like to use is the Lord of the Rings, right? Very famous book and movie. It's literally called The Fellowship of the Ring. I don't know what it is. Basically, it's a story about all these kind of different races. There's the elves, there's the dwarves, there's the humans who otherwise would have no reason to hang out. But they come together, mutually fellowship, and create this technic group called the Fellowship of the Ring. Why? Because there is a common thing that is uniting them, which is we've got to destroy the ring. And that's what causes the fellowship. In other words, by definition, any fellowship has a foundation and a binding glue agent as to why that fellowship exists in the first place. And the more the reason is unclear, the weaker or the shakier the fellowship will be. Okay. Hopefully that's tracking with you. So with that understanding then, what is the basis and foundation for Christian fellowship? And it's straight in the text, not a trick question. You need to be reminded of this point blank, verse, chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Exhort one another every day as long as called today. For, at the end, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. People who love golf, share their love of golf. People who love food, share their love of food. People who love Christ share in the love of Christ. Christian fellowship is rooted, founded, bound together by Christ. Now, without getting too theological, what this means, the basis of our relationship with one another as Christians, it is tied to and flows out of the participation, the relationship that we have with Jesus. Now, you can see how once that gets unclear, the very notion of Christian fellowship becomes hazy. And here's what I want to clarify. This is not a choice that is given to It's not like one day the Bible says, hey, maybe if you choose to, you can participate in Christian fellowship. No, no. What it's saying is this is an objective reality rooted in the very gospel. And this is the root issue for a lot of us who've grown up, obviously, in a more Western individualistic mentality. Biblically speaking, Christian fellowship at its bare bones it flows out of an identity that believers have in Christ, not a preference. So fellowship for Christians is not a preferential thing. It's not a compatibility thing. It's not a shared interest thing. It is an identity thing. I am in Christ. You are in Christ. And that is the root of our fellowship. Not that I like this, you like this, so we're not together. It runs way more profound, way more deep than any worldly fellowship ever can. The problem is, though, in the Western world, we're all wired to kind of believe this notion, culturally speaking, that, hey, I have the right to choose what I want to do, who I want to be, who I want to associate with. And this is actually why I think in the Western church, Christian fellowship is very, very worldly. It looks nothing like what the Bible's talking about. It's, it's predicated and based off of preference, compatibility, not shared identity. And that's where it becomes, frankly, confusing. Worldly. So what does this mean practically? It means 
If there's no indication or any tangible evidence that Jesus is somewhat foundational to the association and relationship that we have to each other as Christians, doesn't mean that we're not fellowshipping, it just means we're not fellowshipping in Christ. And that might be the first place to start, to admit that. So for example, in the Lord of the Rings, it's obvious what is the fellowship rooted on? It's the ring. And throughout the process of the movie and the books, they still do other stuff. They eat together, they hang out, they share laughs, they do activities, they fight together. But the focal point of everything is the ring. And if they didn't care about the ring, they're still a fellowship, they're just no longer a fellowship of the ring. I hope you're getting the point. I'm really drilling it in here. Like, how weird would it be if uh, in the fellowship of the ring, okay, so one of the characters' name is, uh, is Aragorn. So Aragorn comes to the fellowship around the fire, and he's like, guys, I've been mulling over how we can strategize to destroy the ring. I got some really good ideas about this. Tell me what you guys think. How strange would it be if all the other people in the fellowship are like, what are you talking about? Or they're like, awkward, why are you talking about a ring? That would be inconceivable in a fellowship of the ring. And I use that kind of overarching narrative and also illustration to say that happens all the time today in Christian fellowship. Hanging out, having a good time, sharing laughs. Hey, you a Christian? Absolutely. How's your relationship with Christ? Awkward. Why are you talking about Jesus all of a sudden? That happens all the time. It is a confused fellowship. It is a shaky fellowship. It is one that is not founded in the very identity that we claim to have. And so if a non-Christian enters the church, which, by grace of God, if you are exploring a non-Christian, we love that you're here. We want to be a church like that. But it should not be a strange occasion if an unbeliever enters a Christian church, and it should not be a special occasion that, oh my God, I heard them talking about Jesus today. And yet, unfortunately, that's the case. So if Christian fellowship, by definition, implies a relationship and identity that believers share rooted in Christ, why is it important? What is the need? Second point. Uh, one of my favorite movies growing up was a, I love movies, uh, and the movie I love is a movie called Castaway. As you guys know, it's, uh, it's a movie about Tom Hanks' character is a FedEx delivery driver. He's delivering on a plane. The plane crashes into the ocean. He gets shipwrecked. He's only able to survive because he gets his hand on one of the inflatable you know, inflatable devices, and he's totally at the mercy of the current of the ocean. He can't row or anything. And without knowing, he ends up on this deserted island. And spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, I don't care because it's over a decade old. <laughs> but basically, he finds his way back home four years later. And the running dilemma of this whole movie is he has this lovely wife who's like, I can't wait to get back. And what keeps him alive is a picture of his wife. And the, the viewers left to think, like, where's his wife in all this? How come she didn't find him? She shouldn't come looking for him. Where's the search party? And even he's dilemma, he has a dilemma over that. So when he actually meets his wife, he kind of confronts her. Like, hey, because at that point, the shocking point is she's remarried now. She has kids now. So it's just like jarring. You're like, you're obviously Team Tom Hanks, and you're like, what the heck? And so you're almost angry at her until you realize she says, oh, we not only looked for you, we looked, we like, looked everywhere for you. In fact, even the authorities said, stop looking, I pushed it like another year. And so she's taken to the basement, takes out all these maps. And there's maps of the ocean or whatever, and she said, here's where you crashed. And then she says, using all the basic evidence that you can, and she draws kind of a diameter, she's like, this is where you could have drifted within reason. And then she's like, and I pushed them to look even further, right? Just 
like ocean spray. I had them search for about a year for this big of a circle. Now let me give you a frame of reference, okay? So this is where it crashed. This is about the circle that they searched for him. This is where he ended up. There's no possible way that they would have ever thought to look for him there. In fact, there's this kind of sad moment where he's talking to his uh, friend Wilson of volleyball. Okay, he told you to understand. <laughs> hey, Wilson, I made a calculation. He's just writing things in the, on, the, on the thing and he says, according to my calculation, if, if what I'm seeing is correct, we've drifted so far that we're about the, the, the distance of two Texases. That's how far we've driven. And he basically says, like, we, may, we may not get out of here. And Wilson doesn't respond because he's volleyball. Right? <laughs> Again, social beings, right? Okay. That's a whole other illustration. Now I share this. And I think a lot of us think falling away from God that you have some sort of control over it. Or not only that, that, that drifting from God is a dramatic decision or event. Or that it's usually caused by some sort of huge sin or tragedy. In some situations it is. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is for every other situation, Christians fall away by drifting. Drifting. Most of you guys who feel far from God, I guarantee you since COVID, you can't point to some crazy sin you committed. You can't point to some catastrophic event. You know what it is? Drifting. And here's the thing. Drifting is ever so subtle, ever so slight. But you drift long enough, you're two Texas away. And so the writer of Hebrews in context, he's talking to these Jews who've heard the gospel, like many of you, they've heard it not only once or twice, they've heard it from literal apostles and prophets, but they have fallen in love with sin without realizing it. They are fearing persecution, and so they are slowly, slowly compromising. And now what the author is saying is, it doesn't matter if you were raised a pastor's kid, or you were the best Christian, you are prone to wander, as we've seen, and you will drift away from your initial profession in Christ if you are not careful. And so that is the exhortation that starts the entire text today. It says, be careful. Take care. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Because if you are not, you will drift. You will fall away. It will happen. Without Christian fellowship and community, therefore, what he's saying in the text is take care, lest there be in you. There's two problems that can happen that cause you to drift. An evil, unbelieving heart. Okay? Evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there's two things we see there that's going to cause a drift. There's unbelief and then there's sin. Kind of big concepts will then make it very digestible on what this might look for today. What is unbelief? And this is actually really tied to what Pastor Jason was talking about. A lot of us, when we think about unbelief, we think it is this active denial of God. That I no longer believe God. I denounce my faith and I'm choosing to walk away. That may be unbelief for some people, but for most it's not. In our context, unbelief has this more subtle, scary, dangerous, passive side to it. And here's the thing. The danger in it is that you'll never notice how subtle it really is. Theologians call this kind of unbelief a practical atheism. I found that to be a very helpful designation. In other words, your day-to-day -day life becomes completely divorced and disconnected from your faith in God. Nothing about your life, your decision-making, your relationships, the way you think about your decisions in the future,
future had anything to do with Christ, and you profess Christ. You're practically an atheist. Does Jesus have any say on what you do, how you live, who you're going to meet? And if not, technically speaking, you don't need Jesus in your life. You don't have Jesus in your life. Practical atheism. And it doesn't mean you're not, that you don't call yourself a Christian, but functionally, you're not a Christian. That's what it's saying here. And this is the danger that I think, to be honest, post-COVID, a lot of us, including myself, have already fallen into, which is, quite frankly, as Pastor Jesus called it, apathy. We just don't care about our relationship with God anymore. You see, step one of drifting was, man, I feel far from God. What do I do about it? That was maybe COVID year one. Now what I'm seeing is, I don't care about my relationship with God. I've drifted, and, and so what? Very, very scary, dangerous place to be. Now, I do want to make a distinction that there's a difference between struggling or simply not caring. If you are struggling in your relationship with God, praise God. The victory is in the struggle for the Christian, amen? Why not? We're not perfect people. What's kind of scary is how much lack of struggle there is. You know how you know someone's drowned? When there's no bubbles, they're living. That means they're dead. If there's struggle, they're still alive. And the same thing, illustration-wise, unbelief can lead you to that, to this apathetic place. God is a distant apathy. The second danger is the deceitfulness of sin. The subtle but important detail to note here is, uh, even though sin itself is scary and dangerous, he doesn't say sin is what's going to cause a problem for you. He says it's the deceitfulness of sin that's going to cause a problem. Right? The deception. Now, what does that deception look like? The common form of deception sin will say to you is, and, and just know sin, it, it takes the form of its father, Satan, which is always lies or things like, this is not a big deal. You deserve this. You have control over this. Hey, you can always come back to God. You can always come back to church at a later time. Uh, I like how one pastor puts it. He says, the most deadly sins do not leap upon us. They creep upon us. Right? If you look at most of the scandals that happen, they're not these crazy things. They're things that have slowly crept and deceived their way into the lives and the hearts of people. And the devastating result of giving in to this deceit is this inevitable consequence that without you knowing, your heart becomes rock hard and it becomes callous. You become hardened in your ability to love and display the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of people ask me, how do I know that I'm not doing well with God? I feel like I go to church, I do all the things, and I say, how's your love for people? That's usually a good indication. And I think that's biblically sound and accurate as well. And as much as I need to say it for everyone, again, I know a big theme, why we did, hey, restore my soul, let's get right with God, is because a lot of people have been sharing this season, I feel spiritually distant. I feel very stagnant, myself included. And usually we think, you know what I need? I need a retreat, I need to get away, I need to go to the wilderness, I need to practice mindfulness. Hey, no knock on any of these things, but if you want to go to OG Orthodox Christianity, there's actually two things this text is saying, which is very uncomfortable, but a doctor will prescribe what you need to do, not what he wants you to feel like you should do, which is number one, are you living like a practical atheist? Because if you are, why would God be close to you? He literally has no say or no part or no presence in any aspect of your life. Why would you feel close to him? That's like me telling my wife, Angela, I don't feel close to you 
And you're not invited to anything that I'm thinking about, anything I'm feeling about, any decisions that I make, anything that I want to do, you are divorced from that. Oh, I feel so disconnected. It doesn't work that way. Are you looking like a practical atheist? Number two, do you have any unchecked, unrepentant sins in your heart and in your life? Uh, the, the scary part about that one, I think so much time has passed that a lot of people are not even aware of some of the sins that might have crept in, or they don't even feel like you don't even. To be honest, it's not a category that people talk about anymore. But I really, really think this is something that the church cannot overlook as a very significant part of what might be causing spiritual stagnation. And so, what is the command then? Here's where it's all going to tie together. The author does not say, therefore, you know, pull up your bootstraps, become disciplined, and be better as a Christian, right? A lot of us were fixers, that's what we think we should do. That's not what he says to do. He says, how do you combat drifting? How do you stay in the relationship with the Lord in this kind of way? It is through none other than Christian fellowship. That's the only way. True, sound, robust Christian fellowship. In other words, Christian, you might have heard this time and time again, but it's tied to our theme. We need one another. We, we quite literally need one another. That's what the Bible is saying. Like when I'm in a small group with, with the church members, it's not like, hey, I really enjoy this. Or, hey, man, I, I prefer you in my life. Or like, oh, what a luxury. I think Hebrews would say, you need that for life. So I would go as far as to say, if you do not have Christian fellowship in your life, Christian brothers and sisters who in this way, in your shared mutual participation with Christ, are kind of engaging you in that, you will drift. Not you may drift. Not, hey, I just hope you do your disciplines. Without each other, we'll die. That's what this is saying. The stakes are really hot. And I know I sound really intense. Because I'm tired. <laughs> I didn't get any sleep. The Holy Spirit is just like, you take it over, okay? But it's biblically sound, so I have no problem. We need one another. And the pastoral burden, as much as you want people to enjoy things, it breaks the pastor's heart because the pastor is an under-shepherd. We are held responsible to the Lord who is the good shepherd to make sure his sheep don't go astray. And you know what a lot of churches do? is they'll send sheep care packages on their way to destruction. It's not loving. If, if a sheep, and we are all sheep, a fellow sheep is about to, to, to do something that's going to harm itself. I've always found this to be a powerful illustration. The shepherd don't care if the sheep does not like the shepherd. <laughs> the shepherd does not care if the shepherd in that moment needs to actually make that sheep feel like Hey, why are you not loving me in this moment? Or as far as even breaking the sheep's leg so it doesn't kill itself? To me, that's all very strong imagery on the other side of it. And we need one another in that way. And so Christian fellowship takes place primarily in, again, the church, which lastly, practice and will be done. Now, obviously, it's a much broader idea, but I want to zero in on what the text is saying. Um, if there's nothing else you take away from the text, please take this away. Such a clear, explicit command and exhortation. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, specifically in there it says, But, verse 13, exhort one another, talking to Christians, 
every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now let's just highlight a couple things so we know what it's saying. What does it mean to exhort? Because everyone here, not my preference, not my opinion, but the Word of God, if you call yourself a Christian, it is telling you and exhorting you that you don't have to be in hospitality, welcoming, all good, but you are called to serve one another in the church in this way, which is to exhort. What does it mean? It means to urge, to strongly encourage. It's a more intense word that carries a little more oomph than just suggesting stuff to each other. And in the context, it's actually talking more idea of encouraging someone both positively in affirmation and constructively in correction in relation to what the fellowship was about in the first place, which is Christ. See how it all makes full circle now. We exhort one another to remain in the fellowship that has bound us together in the first place, which is Christ. And the second thing I want to highlight is how often the author encourages us to do this. He says, exhort one another not every Sunday, not every community group, every day. I wish there was a Greek nuance here, where it's like every day actually means once a week. Surprise. It literally means every day. <laughs> yeah, I looked it up. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for laughing. I'm hinged right now. It's all beyond we'll do it, man. He's quite literally saying. One of the daily practices for a Christian is the one anotherism caring for other Christians. It's as regular as I eat breakfast, I, I put my kids down, and I'm burdened for the fellow Christian. That, you guys see what that's saying, right? Like, it's not weird to say, hey, do you check your email every day? Do you go to the gym every day? For the Christian, do you care about your fellow Christians every day? That's not to say you have to be super extravagant or host crazy meals, but do you care? And are you burdened for? You see, this is why community has become so short-circuited, because most people barely care about Christian community enough for community group. You feel me? Oh, man. <laughs> for these two hours, I need to start caring. And then you bounce. So we have a long way to go. Baby steps, step at a time, but this is the implication of what it's saying. And, and the reason is not to put this extreme burden on us, guys. The reason is because the author of Hebrews, and even by extension, God himself, he's aware of what we are up against. Amen? That's why he's giving you the prescription. If a doctor gave me super hard meds, I'm not going to be like, whoa, doctor. Too intense. Give me Tylenol. I would say, oh, what I'm up against must be pretty serious for him to prescribe this. So for God to say, Christian, you want to stay alive? You need exhort, to exhort one another every day to stay in the game? He's not doing that to be this like drill sergeant or because, oh, I'm so pleased in your service. No, no. He wants you to survive. That's why. And because he loves us, he's saying to combat the enemy effectively. This is what's needed in the church. Now, obviously, I am not the model example of this. I was humbled and rebuked because the heart behind this exhortation, like I mentioned, that on your two-week checklist for a Christian, one thing you ought to do is be concerned about the faith of your fellow believers. Um, this is, it, it, it's humbling because we care about other people, 
But we care about stuff like how they make us feel, <laughs> or how like frustrating they are, or like how much they share our common you know, interests and passions, which are all good things, but like their faith. It gives you a different perspective. For example, like when a newcomer comes into the church, and as a pastor, if I'm guilty of this, it kind of feeds in. If a newcomer comes into the church, what you should primarily be thinking about is how's their relationship with the Lord? How can I exemplify the gospel to them? How do I get them to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Because that is what binds us together. And so if the very starting point is not that, but it's more like, how do they fit into our community? How did they make feel? Not bad things, but we've begun on too low of a level. And that perpetuates a certain type of culture that unfortunately will not cut it against the enemy. And so how do we practice this? Uh, just really quick ways and then we'll be done. I know I said we'll be done like three times. <laughs> Tired, okay. <laughs> so number one, as simple as it is, uh, I think you just have to talk about Jesus. I know that sounds so cliche, but I just could not think of a workaround here. Again, I think that the church culture today, the unfortunate thing is like, Jesus is almost like taboo for a Christian talk about, which is so strange to me. Talk about Jesus. Christian fellowship should include Christ in some way. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, overtly swing the other way and become an overtly religious, Bible-bashing person. Don't be that person. But at the same time, if they all fellowship, never talk about God. It's a weird fellowship. If Christians never talk about Christ, it is a weird fellowship. So even at the expense of it maybe feeling weird or awkward, the challenge would be, every life stage you are on, parents, do your kids hear the name of Jesus come out of your mouth? Mary comes. Do you talk about Jesus in your marriage? Singles, young adults, anyone, college, is Jesus present in your anxieties and what's going to happen in life? Because if he is not, at the very least, you can't expect to feel close to So at least be honest about that. Infusing Christ back into the fellowship. Step one. Number two, if you need to do something, uh, just prayer is key. Pray for a fellow believer. Maybe you're more awkward, you don't really know how to approach someone, but this is just straight from Ephesians 6. The, the easiest application I can give, and it's easier for members to do a member's directory, just try. Once a week, just pray for another Christian. Pray for another Christian. God, be with them. Maybe part of my to-do list. It doesn't have to be super long. It can be something super simple. But Father, I just pray. Maybe even today. Someone needs small group. Hey, I pray that I didn't really know the words. Breath prayer. That's it. And the Bible promises the power of the Spirit. That alone can single-handedly change the entire culture of the church. Maybe the Spirit needs to do His thing and we need to rely less on our thing. And lastly, and probably most practically, invite and offer time to reputation. Because that is the actual thing that text is talking about in relationships, right? As Hebrews says, we need to receive exhortation regularly in our lives to be spiritually healthy. The best way to do this is to ask for it. Hey, can you uh, be there for me, spiritually speaking? Yeah, I have this one struggle. I, I, I don't like being asked about it, so can you do that? And here's the thing, like as weird as it is, when things are really important, we do that. I, I find it very interesting that people, they have no problem asking for accountability for secular things, right? Whether it's like, hey, can you look over my resume? Hey, can you help me with my job search? Hey, can you help me with my, uh, can you even do like a golf swing? Like, hey, can you record this? Can you help me? When it comes to Christianity, for some reason, it's weird to ask each other for help. Do you see the irony? 
So invite exhortation into your life that much easier said than done. So ah, we do have a solution that's coming. Okay, we're not just saying this without any sort of thing. One of the biggest pastoral burdens we've had for years now, but particularly this past year, is what arena do we have for our church people, church members, to formally spiritually grow and have each other accountable? It's not really that. The community groups kind of, you know, it's, it's hard. We get that. What arena do we have for that to happen? And so just know, plan it early next year. Don't be surprised if we're like, hey, remember what we talked about retreat? Here is what we're trying to do. And to be honest, like pastorally speaking, however many people sign up for that, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It'll probably show the level of indication of how serious we are about finding these kind of avenues and exhortation of them. But the flip side of that, at the same time, Hebrews, the call to exhort is not just a consuming one, hey, can you exhort me? But it's also a giving one, I am called to exhort you. And so that also could be, hey, I haven't talked to this person in a while. I want to see how they're doing. How are you? Spiritually. Hey, could you use some help in your life? It sounds like you're really struggling. Offering up yourself as the exhortation that people need is another way to be obedient to what he's saying. And I, I really can't help but wonder how meaningful it would be if even half of our church took the time to apply some of these things in the context of our church, which is super, super practical. And if you want any any sort of like, what is a good bite-sized thing for me to take away from retreat, uh, in light of me wanting to understand that God is a good shepherd, in light of me wanting to be someone who exhorts and receives exhortation, uh, this is kind of a goal that I want to like etch into my, my brain. Um, I'll probably write it on my hand, because I'm too shy to get a tattoo, so I'll put it in Sharpie, right? So it's permanent or not. Um, how awesome would it be if your reputation became, hey, talking to you, being around you has encouraged me on my spiritual. How awesome would that be? Hey, just by talking to you or like being around you consistently, it's really encouraged me to look to Jesus. It's really helped me to consider how to be spiritual. I'm scared to pull our church. Well, you don't have to say that. I really think it's going to take a collective church-wide effort in prayer and intentionality move toward not Christian service, but there I say Christian survival. Because that's really what we're about. So that being said, if I can just lead us in a quick prayer as we close, and I'm going to invite Eric Or not, never mind. Yeah, if we just take one quick moment to pray. I know I kind of shotgunned a lot of things out there, but any anytime you come to a retreat, the biggest burden is like, how do I not make this a one-off? How do I really digest chew on, apply some of these things. So that being said, whatever that might be, if you have something on your heart, please pray over that. But anyone else, if you could just pray that, man, would God really help our church to be a place that doesn't just look like a church, doesn't just play the game, but really genuinely tries to be a place that we apply some of the things. So let's just take a quick moment to pray.